0: mean old lion media presents the history of being black what up though welcome to the history of being black podcast i am your host as usual jay hall and i'm joined today by a guy that i'm pretty sure i anticipating is going to be an unpredictable riot comedian radio personality this guy is named rudy rush how you doing good sir what's up jay how are you Good, good. I just want to tell you that um, for the longest, I've known who you were from afar just in growing up in my childhood, right? And it took me a second to realize that you were the same guy who was also on radio, because I started off on radio, so I knew who you were in radio, uh-huh. in a sense. And then I had to go back and be like, oh, man, that's the same dude. But, you know, we had the same hairline transplant.
1: So I was <laughs> <the same. laughs>
0: so it, it just, you know,
1: it's just like, oh, that's the guy. You know
0: what I'm saying? Like, that's yeah. the
1: guy. Now he's telling everybody how old I am. It's like when I was young coming up, and then I knew you from there, no, you've been around far. for a while. I, I, yeah, listen, I've been around for a while, dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: you know, you've been around because you started young. Yes, you I know, did. That's 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 the truth of it. You know, a lot of times people who start young, I think about people like you, LL Cool J, even Bow that where you guys started so young that people think you're actually older than what you are, and you're not at all
1: really no no i'm still i'm still one of the youngest comics in the in the circle of comics with the exception of kevin hart being maybe five years younger than me and that can tell you to some degree how young i am in in respects to what people think a young comedian is so it's funny yeah 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 you know people like me we i you know
0: i cheated because i was a um uh, uh you know i was a good for nothing when i was growing up so i got into the game like late so I can always, you know, <laughs> when, the, when the reality is I ain't that far behind myself, but I got into yeah. the game, you know, so late by the time I found Jesus and Muhammad and everybody else, <laughs> you know, when someone took a chance on me, you know, so it almost looked like I came in a little later. But the reality is the birth certificate ain't that ain't, ain't too much far.
1: Okay. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, the hair transplant, I was, look, I was, I was, <laughs> I was sporting the baldy at 30. I was like, hey, I'm, I'm done. I'm out the game. Hey, but you know, back then we didn't we didn't really look at it like you was doing it because you, it was like a it was the style that you did. You know nah, what I mean? Th- nah, listen, Jay, I tried to hold on. I had the black. Oh, you spray. was one of them. I had the Beijing. I said, "Yo, baby, don't touch my head."
0: Not <laughs> the original. And <laughs> see, you probably had the original um, Beijing when 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 they could do that. Not not they cheating now. They, cheating, yeah, they now. cheating
1: now. But I had the spray, and it, and if you didn't touch the spray, which I never really let people touch my head because I was, I mean, even to this day as a bald head gentleman. I do I do not like my head being touched unless my daughter smack me in the head or something Yo. like that. But other than that, but it was funny. It was almost like a magnet. People would touch my head like you did just a great job. Like, look at your hand, it'd be black. I say, I gotta Yo. go.
0: Ball. Yo, can we we're we gonna have to do a separate show on just about, you know, how bald head men are just mishandled. Everyone feels like they <laughs> want to touch the globe. And I I don't understand it. Besides my niece, I don't know what everyone else is doing. You yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah, like yeah. what are, what do you what make you want to go touch another man's head just off the shrimp? I don't understand what this word yeah. has come to. Yeah. It's just it's just not my thing. But you know, it's it's good to have you on here. You know, how how you been just as a person? Because I just want to ask that because ever since 2020, every
1: other year to me has felt like a sequel. So Yo, I genuinely ask, well, uh. like, how are you? You know, it's funny. That's an interesting question. And and I've never been asked that question. That's a very good question, Jay. And I think you should keep that in your repertoire because sometimes you don't really Think of what people are going through because sometimes it seems you know I post on Instagram everything looks fantastic. You could even ask the people with court, the child support court, they think I'm doing fantastic. You know what I'm saying? They think <laughs> I'm living la vida loca. You know what I mean? They they got all different screenshots. I'm like, listen, and on one it. hand, I, yeah, on one hand I'm upset, but the other hand I'm like it's working because this is the idea I want everybody to know. I'm back out here. But uh, to answer your question, and I do appreciate it uh you know with everything that's been going on since 2020 it's been a it's been a roller coaster and i just have very good friends and good people in my life who kind of interject and, and chime in on the things that they see me going through and have gone through and how i still have this you know upbeat attitude and fortitude to kind of just be a better version of myself and do better things with my life and so yeah i'm doing great and you know things on, on paper could be better, but me mentally and, and physically and, and just where I'm at in comedy and, and other things like that, I feel like I'm in a fantastic place. So thank you. I'm, I'm actually great.
0: That's good, man. You know, I want to put some respect on your name. So we're we going to take it down memory lane for a little <laughs> quick second, you know, and I'm pretty sure you've been asked this before, but, you know, I'm just going to give it to you and ask you straight. When it comes to comedy, it's one of those art forms I feel it is the hardest art form to do that everybody feels like they can do. Okay. What made you growing up? And you from Brooklyn, right? From Harlem. Harlem. So, so my apologies. No, Free no, Harlem, no. Right?
1: Let me tell you something. It's Chris Rock's fault because when I did Def Jam, that's what and, it was. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you the quick story. The funniest part is. Like, I was living in Brooklyn at the time. I had just graduated from high school and came from South, back from South Carolina. I'm from New York originally, but I spent three years at high school in South Carolina with my aunt. That's another story. But when I got back, payroll, they wanted to know where to send your check. And I had a Brooklyn address. So instead of them asking me personally, they just took the address from Brooklyn and gave that to Chris Rock. So when he introduced me, he was like, from Brooklyn. And of course, he's a Brooklyn native, so he was excited about it. But everybody at Harlem was up and I was like, yo, what's <laughs> up, yo? I was like, ah. No. So I'm from Harlem, USA. Uh born and raised, 110th Street, came up and uh great friends with the Central Park 5, things of that nature. That's how close I was to to, to to being a Harlemite and other things of that nature. So yeah, yeah, I'm from Harlem. Sorry. No,
0: no, no, it's all good. I I, I lived in New York twice. I was one of those, you know, fresh out of college. Let's go live in New York and try to make it happen. Uh, so I, I stayed in Brooklyn a couple of times. Um, but, you know, Harlem, in a weird way, is still my favorite part of NY. I'm a Detroit native. <laughs> yeah, um, But Harlem is still probably my favorite part of NY. And nice. so, you know, you, knowing and I didn't know that you had the connection with the Central Park Five. And it always seems as if comedians have some sort of either front seat the tragedy or experience the tragedy when it comes to comedy. Man. Would you say that was one of your tickets of what what made you interested
1: in this kind of genre? So let me tell you, I always thought that I would be the first. The first thing is when you grow up as an African-American youth in America, period, you think of yourself, especially if you have a physical prowess or you, or you excel at sports. I thought I was going to be an athlete and I played. I was a very good basketball player, even in New York City, one of the meccas of basketball in, in consideration, especially back when I was coming up. I was uh one of the top under 14 in New York City. And so I thought that that would parlay into possibly being, you know, you, you dream about it. You put the little sticks on the you know papers on the wall. Michael Jordan, Isaiah Thomas, but then it kind of morphed into uh, sports journalism because I like sports so much and I knew all the players and I knew all the different. So I th- I thought I would have a you know career in sports because I'm five ten, so I didn't you know grow. I didn't have the the. Uh, the uh the, the the team behind me to kind of push me to be a professional athlete. I never got into football because my dad never signed me up, which I'm happy now that he didn't. Because I'm like I walk around here, you know, with all the situations they have going on and all that brutal uh, situations that go on in football. So I'm, I think I may have dodged the bullet. But as far as comedy, I was working in a law firm in New York City, and a Jewish young lady who worked there. She was really big on entertainment, and she actually was the one who was like, "You need to go on this audition. It was for Living Color." And you had to, uh, you know, have different characters. And I got called back like three or four times, which made me say, hey, this may be, I may be funny. And one guy on the job, uh, an older gentleman named Reg, who's a good friend of mine, Reggie Simmons, he was like, I'm going to sign you up for the club. And then the great, it was a great night. And we just moved forward from there. And I hadn't stopped. And I was like 18, 19. And I haven't stopped since. What was the name of the club? It was a New York comedy club. And it was so funny. And I tell this story all the time it was a amateur night. You had to bring in three customers to get on stage. And as an incentive, they gave you $2 back on every person that you brought. So it was a $7 ticket. I get $2 back. They get five, but I knew I can get at least 10 people. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, back then I was like, you know, 18, 19. I hadn't started drinking yet. So it was all about food for me. I was like, I can get $20. Get me, get me an Astro burger with some things, that thing, go home and chill. And so many people from my job thought I was funny, including my family, which is pretty small, maybe nine people. But to this day, if they still hold the record for amateur night, ninety people showed up. I made 180 bucks. It was and a headline that night. It was like, I mean, it was the um, most unbelievable thing. And that's where my career started, and I never stopped from that point.
0: So you you take off and you're and you're doing this thing, like, did you have an interest in it beforehand? Like, you know, even before that lady mentioned that to you, did you see comedians and say, yo, I want
1: to do that? <laughs> so, so Jay, I want to do what I did in, a, in an interview years ago. I don't know if you heard of uh, Tony Woods. He's a really good friend of mine. He's like one of the biggest comics I met at the time. And he's actually the person who Chappelle thanked in his Mark Twain uh, yes. award speech. Mm-hmm. And he, we were doing an interview and I got all deep in it. But let me just say this. I used to really appreciate comedy on a different level. I enjoyed it. But I, but unlike seeing Dr. J or, or MJ or, or Magic Johnson or anybody, I would go out and emulate that. I would go out and want to be that. I always would see Martin Lawrence, uh, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy. And those are the guys I kind of came up with. And I would never think... To go and do that because it was just so complicated to me, it was, and I would I would hear the jokes differently though. Now that I'm a comic, I would be like so amazed at how they can do that and capture a, a, a moment in time, whether it be through story or observation. And so now I knew why I took it so serious because I'm so good at it now. Mm. If that Man. makes sense. If that makes sense, no, no, no. other people would see it and be like, I want to be funny too. now nah, I didn't think that. I was like, Yo, I cannot do that. That is unbelievable how they do it. And once I learned how to do it. Then I understood that's what that was my calling.
0: Well, first of all, I know you, you, you that you're honest. Number one, comedians are using honest. Number two, you made a point to say you're five ten. And us five ten brothers, we tell you we five ten. You know, I just wanna I just want to point that out because Post I'm five ten and I let me you know <laughs> I am five ten. You, you gotta understand? let them know, Jay. You gotta Listen, let them know. I am a C minus in height. Any brother below me, I feel for you. I am taller than the average woman. You yes. understand? So yes. That's my goal was to be taller than my mom. Now I should have shot a little higher, but listen, I'm taller than my mother. That's that's all that matters. So us five ten brothers, we 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 literally say it very exact. Like you know, I'm five ten, bro. We got proof, of purchase, and everything. Like, Let me tell you something, that.
1: Jay. My number one line to women who are tall, when I meet them out, they be like, "How tall are you?" I say, "You take them shoes off. I'm taller than you. I'm taller than you, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm taller than you, so you can wear your heels. I'm fine. I like
0: I'm, it. I'm totally fine." You know what I mean? I, I, I can run with that. So I know you're honest when it comes to that. Did you, did you you know, you started at 18. Did you experience a bomb? Like your first bomb? And do you remember it?
1: Yo, let me tell you something. I was very, no. I'm going to tell you two stories. Go one successful and one bomb. I had one major bomb when I was young, when I first started. So the first the first time I went on stage, the first night, I could have bombed. Like I said, they were saving me to the end. And the funny thing, Jay, was... You're doing an amateur show. The host is pretty good because they, they they plug a guy in who's normally at the club who hosts the show. But everybody else is just on their first time on stage or been on mm. stage a few times. Everybody's either mediocre or terrible. So my confidence grew on every person. The crowd, like I told you, was packed in this little comedy club, the New York Comedy Club on 23rd or 24th Street. This one comic, this is my first lesson in comedy, named Billy. He used to work on the Friday night shows. That was the big show. And he walked by the, you know, he looked like a bum off the street and he, and I didn't know him from any, I didn't see him on Def Jam. And he was like, what's going on tonight, guys? He's like, yo, this kid got all these people in here. But, you you know, he was like, I gotta get on. This is, uh, this is excellent. He was like, they was like, nah, you gotta ask the kid. And I didn't know him. I was like, yeah, you want to go on before me? Go right on before me. Go ahead. This dude, to this day, I hope he's alive and well and stuff. I haven't seen him in years. But this dude was one of the people who I learned a lot from under. But, you know, he went on stage. And when I tell you, Jay, he ripped that club a new behind. Like, it was just like unbelievable. My mother's in the front taking a glass of wiping her face. Everybody's laughing. But the first joke to save me was the best joke I ever told to my day in this career of, of mine. And it set me on my path was I just, was, I just observed the room. And I said, the first joke, I had some jokes laid out, but I said, this is my first time on stage, and y'all put me on after this MFA, the room exploded. It seemed like everybody laughed for like five minutes straight because everyone was feeling the angst, the unbelievable, like, what is Rudy going to do? Like, we came to see him. How is he going to top this? Mac, And it took... All the air out of all of the greatness that Billy did, not taking anything negative from him, but it just helped me ride the wave. I became a headliner in my own right the very first night, if you could, if you could understand what I mean by that, yeah, because I control yeah. I control the audience in the room. But there was a place called the Peppermint Lounge in Jersey where everybody went to audition for Deaf Comedy Jam. So now to this point, I'm only doing the mainstream rooms, which is mostly white and and and, and multicultural. So I'm killing it. Everybody from the law firm that I was working with, I had 20 to 40 people every week coming to see me. But this man met my mom, and he's from Jersey. He was like, Hey, man, listen, I got this place called the Peppermint Lounge. I'm going to take your son. And you hear Peppermint Lounge, you think it's a small, little, dainty little spot. You know, I'm killing all these other shows. I get in there. It's about 300, 400 people in there. Queen Latifah's in there. Naughty by Nature's on the other side of the room. It's ruckus. It's Jersey. It's Newark. It's East Orange, New Jersey. But if you don't, nobody know about Jersey, it's straight up hood. And everybody's in there. But all the comics from Def Comedy Jam, I'm seeing them. I'm bugging out, right, Jay? And Flex Alexander's the host because Bill Bellamy at the time was out of town working. When I tell you, I got served that night, and I was doing well at first. But I did just one joke that was just not well. It didn't sit well with the fellas. I was like, the first joke I told was like, "Yo, the ladies look good tonight." I was trying to do like icebreaker. they was like, "Yeah." I said, "Black women tell them a black woman look good every night." They was like, "Yeah." The dude was like, "What?" Man, booed us for. Yo, I got booed, and like a bad date. The dude who who brought me there was an older gentleman. I was supposed to stay on his couch, and then he was gonna drive me to the to the to the train station the next day. He treated me like like a bad date. He was like, "Yo, you could walk down the block, you could turn around here." <laughs> I was like, "Oh," but luckily for me, it turned around quickly. It didn't stay long. I I didn't let it manifest into you know, kind of like what your shooting coach tell you. You know, like, "Yo, you missed a shot, get a bad memory, shoot again." So. And luckily for me, I hadn't had too many. That was, the, that was probably the worst, and it never got – I've had bad nights. We all had nights that we don't excel the way we want. But, yeah, it was nothing close. So I did pretty good the, the, this whole ride, almost 30 years now. Yeah, I
0: feel like um, – and I have a lot of comedian friends, and one thing they kind of t- tell me, there's a difference between a bad night and bombing.
1: Absolutely. Can you, I, so can I've, you, only
0: bombed, I've only bombed twice. Yeah, can you respond on that for a second, the difference between a bad night and bombing?
1: Absolutely bombing is when nothing works. You know, a bad night is when everything doesn't work the way you, it works, but it doesn't work to the effectiveness that you're accustomed to. So it's almost like, you know, being in a relationship with your lady or or, or just meeting a girl for the first time. And maybe you're taking that step, you know, you know you, you're rounding home base and, you know, you usually close the deal. But, you know, your performance is just a little off to the point where you're like, I hope I get another chance because... Like comedy, it was just like the jokes, no one booed you, no one said anything disrespectful or whatever, but you could just feel the energy of the crowd. They're like, all right, we're going to tolerate you. Let's get on Mm. to the next one. And then you see other people go on stage and really rock the mic. And that's when you say, okay, I had a bad night tonight. So that's the difference. Uh, Bombing is when, when the crowd participates in you exiting the stage.
0: Oh. When they, yeah,
1: when they're like, yo, get your man, yo, it's over. Yo, you, why are you still talking? Like, when you start doing that, you bump,
0: Yeah, I feel like sometimes a bad night can happen when the audience is anticipating someone else. Like, if they came to see Dave Chappelle and their attitude is fixated on Dave Chappelle, it's almost like nobody who goes up there is going to be enough of them, exactly. you know, at, at all. And that's not something that, and what I see in that is the professionalism in that. And it's only because, you know, I've, I've talked on stage. I'm not a comedian, but I've talked on stage. I've introduced people. So I understand what you was talking about, about the reading the crowd part. Mm. And there's been times where I admire a comedian's professionalism within that because they don't stay too long on it. Like you said, um, someone told me, a mentor told me, always believe in Kim. K-I-M. Keep it moving. Yeah. You know, and they and they keep it moving in that because they're just so focused on the main act. And there's nothing you can do about it. It seems like there's nothing you can
1: do about it. Nothing. Nothing. So there's times that I perform with, like, you know, earlier or, or like I said, early on with some rap groups. And, like, you've been in, like, them little places where there's no seat to you in a little little dive bar in some kind of city. And they just waiting for this rap act to come on. And they're not trying to hear anything. I remember there was a place called Bentley's in New York. We used to party. And they... Try to do comedy in there. It's 12 o'clock. They like, all right, y'all stop bumping and grinding. We got some comedy. I was like, y'all, the worst you could do is get a dude off of a chick. Like he's got his momentum. He's about to set his night up. And now you want to hear some funny, dude. So it was it was some tough times back then. But it made, it gave us the fortitude to be some of the great comics that you see today in that same room with me. And so, yeah, so it was it was it was a part of the
0: culture. So you're doing your thing, and you also mentioned that you were still working at this law firm. But when did you hit your, your stride and, and know that this was for you? Like, when did you go full-time into this?
1: Yo, so I worked. I was there a year and a half. I got the job right at 18, right out of high school. And I was working, like I said, at the law firm. And I had gotten a couple of promotions. But then I had started doing... uh After a year and a half, I would, you know, I started doing comedy and another year and a half, you know, going to the clubs and working in between, I got an opportunity to go on the road and, you know, do a comedy tour. Now, the funny thing is so much support from the, from the uh, firm where the uh, general manager of the firm, she was her, she was known as a stickler, like a really tough person to get along with or, or allow people to do things. And I went to her and I was like, and I remember her name, McGillock. her name, and she she walked around. She had this demeanor, like nowadays, you know, with all the pre- pronouns and everything. She could have been whatever, because she was she was kind of tough. She was, rough, you know, like you didn't know what she was, and so I didn't know how much she appreciated and liked what I did not only in my personal life, but how it kind of like reflected on not only the agency where I got my job, but even in, 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 as a morale booster around the office. So she, she understood, I don't even know if she ever came to one of my shows, but when I went to her, I was like, Hey, I want to take this tour, but I don't want to quit. I like it here. It allows me, you know, to do this and that. And she was like, I, I totally I'll give you a, the pass to go. But I was working in the purchasing department with another gentleman. His name is a, and you know, at the time, you know, you're young. So at first I was feeling salty because Pierre was like, he was Haitian descent. He's like, no, you have to, you have to uh, uh, resign. And if the job is available when you come back, you can apply then. And I, and I took it as a slight, like he was hating on me, but in, in, in hindsight, he really was doing me a favor because the person I am, I'm not coming back. I knew that was it. So I took that leap of faith. And I went on this thing called the Creative Tour, which all the Def Jam comics were on. And, and I was a feature for Talent, who was uh, doing a, a lot of stuff in movies and things of that nature. And I took the leap. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough to kind of start my career. And then the the, the show got cut. I mean, the tour got cut in between because Talent got a, a movie deal. To show you where I was at, Jay, I didn't even have my license at the time. So I couldn't drive myself. I was doing well. And they wanted me to continue the tour by myself. And they would get another headliner. But I just couldn't do it because I couldn't drive to all the other cities because I didn't have a license or credit card to rent a car, none of that. So I came back with half the money. But I had my 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 fortitude to say, I'm just going to keep doing this. And I did do well. I, I worked out really well. I was on Def Jam the following year. I did like two, three TV shows. And then I, at the age of 23, I was uh, doing warm for Steve Harvey the the Apollo. So I was on my way. How's your family
0: support at this time? Are they understanding? Because, you know, creatives... We don't have the best track record when you come to family's um, support. You know, it's like, I, like, for example, I'm from Detroit. It's a blue collar town. Your choices are you work at the plant or you work the block. All right. Mm. And, and, and they accept those before they accept you saying, hey, I'm going to go be a writer. I'm going to be a comedian. <laughs> so what, what was your family support during this moment of your, of your
1: come up? So I'll put it to you this way. Honestly, and I love my family. I just think like like, like me knowing celebrities, I see them differently. I don't see Kevin Hart as this big worldwide celebrity. I mean, I respect it. Him, Bill Burr, Joe Coy, because I knew everyone in their infancy, like when we were all just kind of struggling. So I don't see them like that. So I kind of give my family a break where you saw me as a kid. You saw me coming up. We shared rooms together. You know what I'm saying? Like things of that nature. So it was just like, it was just hard because my parents – were not the type to gush over your accomplishments, uh like you know my father and my mother they split when I was young, but i but I knew them both, of course my father and stuff like that, so he would say things like this I don't know how you deal with all those people instead of saying like yo, that's great that how you go out there and you do these great things, and man i don't you know it was more like yo, I don't get it man like like I don't like people, you know what I'm saying like so it was more like he wasn't being negative in the sense he was trying to tear down what I was doing, but it wasn't positive, you know, it made me think about it. And then my mother, on the other hand, like, you know, it was just never words of affirmation. Everybody was, you know, consumed about what was going on. You're taking care of five kids. And and yeah, this one is doing well. And, you know, I got some favoritism. I don't think because of that, in conjunction with my personality, I probably would have been somewhat the favorite or at least got along with her, even if I weren't doing what I'm doing now, but it just was never like, hey, this is unbelievable what you're doing and we appreciate. I just never got that. And from my brothers and sisters, it was almost like, oh, you only getting treated like that because you're doing this. Or you only like so it was pretty tough. I love them all. And it's not something to say negatively, but you know, you asked the question and that's the honest answer that I have. I never really got the support from my family that I felt like I could get, or I've seen some of my other people get. Like like I'll tell you this, and I'll end it like that. Kanye's that Kanye documentation on that documentary on on Netflix if you've seen that his mom is reciting his rhymes he didn't even know him I cried bro I cried because I was like yo she totally gets it good or bad wherever he's at right now and that's a whole nother topic of discussion like yo that 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 made me feel like what I'm feeling is not fake it's not something I made up people out there do exist for their children in that manner. Like she was the bomb for me. Like, 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 like it made me see him in a whole nother light. I thought that was dope that she did that. Yeah. Let's, let's stay
0: on that for a second, because that's something that's like a commonality with me having conversations with people when it comes to black families. I, I feel like the language of the love when it comes to the support part, I always say black families didn't necessarily have ties. You know what I mean? Especially a certain generation. I've I've learned to have grace with my family to understand, you know, my mom worked and worked and worked and she was trying to get me away from certain temptations in life. Right. Mm. So there was very little room to really breathe and be on some like, oh, blah, blah, blah. But, the you know, I was fortunate because my mother really appreciated my imagination. You know, Mm. I didn't Mm. I didn't realize how much that was a privilege. Based upon my other friends who felt that way, yeah. Do you do you think when you look at the history of us, we've only maybe, you know, you was on Def Jam, but we're only about what a second generation out of people really understanding us taking these career choices that are not so basic of nine to five. What do you what are your what's your take on where that comes from on the lack of that kind of support or being that supportive? Because like you said, watching Kanye's mom, I remember like you said for me too that was foreign. You know what I mean? Like that was, yeah. my, my, my mother didn't block it, but she wasn't reciting. No, you know what I mean? She wasn't going to go that far to like, recite. she would just more like,
1: you know, enjoy your life. But uh-huh. what do you, what do you think that take is when it comes to the black family? In that? I don't know. Like my family would be more, instead of reciting, reciting a, a, a joke that they thought was funny, they would be like, when are you going to come up with some new jokes? Like things like that would be different. And I just think it comes from, you know, like they're, they're growing up and they're, Their lack of love that was given to them and the the somewhat of the abuse and the times that they were going through mentally, physically and their relationships with their parents, you know, and not growing up. We're the first generation that really took the mantle of I'm going to break these generational curses. I'm going to break the cycle. You know, our parents wasn't thinking about why their parents were the way they were. They just thought that's the way things are. That's how I am with my children. That's how I'm going to be. Well, me, I was like, I'm never going to beat my kids like this. I'm never going to, you know, uh, uh, talk to my daughters in the fashion that my my mother talked to my sister or to me. And so that's where the change kind of came in. And then to find out later in life, and this is just recently, Jay, learning how I can heal the younger person in me. That was was done in in this fashion, and things, and the love, and the, all the admiration, and, and 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 the confidence that I lacked, I'm giving it to myself now. I'm parenting myself, or, or at least giving myself that platform where I can believe in something from me. I know it's real. I don't have to get it from somebody else, and I give it to my children as well.
0: Yeah, that's 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 an interesting thing in that because you're right. I don't even know if the word generational and curses existed in the 90s. Nope. Right? Or or the words um, emotional and intelligence. Right? (laughs) And and it's so crazy because watching Sesame Street, they used to combine words all the time. They never combined (laughs) those. You know, they never combined those. You know, you you mentioned it a few times, but can you expound on the importance of what the Def Jam comedy era was and why that was so important to be on?
1: Yo, I almost can't. Put into words what it meant to be a Def Jam comedian. The only way I can describe it in its totality, possibly, is when, if you saw the Netflix 25 special, 25 years, Def Jam celebrating the 25 years. Jay, this is me coming into myself, saying to myself, trying to convince myself. And I'm still not there. I haven't gotten any therapy yet to kind of like, you know, the pandemic hadn't hit yet. It's 2014, I believe it is, and when I went out to LA and I got the invitation, and I wasn't gonna go. I was like, I ain't going to that. They ain't gonna be going. he's gonna be boring. They ain't gonna really recognize, the, you know, what I've done or whatever, you know, because you just feel things about yourself, and it was personal, so it had nothing to do with the industry. It was just some place that I had myself and how I saw myself within the the confines of of, of comedy, and so. I said, yo, Ru, I had a conversation, one of the best conversations I had with myself. I said, go. They they provide in the hotel. They provide the airfare and all this other stuff. Go see some of the people you haven't seen in a while. Maybe you could recharge. Maybe you could find something in yourself that, you know, like, you know, that you're lacking right now. And I went out there. And just to give you some, you know, just, just an idea. you At the Beverly Hilton, where they do major award shows and things of that nature. So it's highbrow. Everything is top-notch. I get there, the hotel room is great, I got car service, but then when I go to the room, they have a packet for me, and when I get into the ballroom, there's tiers. There's a a first tier, there's a second tier, and then there's a third tier inside the ballroom. I'm in the first tier behind the second and third table. I got Diddy and his contingency on on my right-hand side. I got Cat Williams and and a few other comics of Notoriety, and it's me sitting with Earthquake and and, and, uh, my man, uh, Bruce Bruce. In front of us is Russell Simmons, Stan Lathan, and, and and the and and the heads of state of, of Def Jam. And then you get DL Hughley and my man Dave Chappelle go on stage. And as they're doing the best part of the show, which I'm sitting there at the table right there, like they usually cut things like that out. But that was the best part of the show. Cause the show was moving kind of kind of kind of meagerly, kind of boring. But when they had the teleprompter mishap, it turned into some magic, which they kept. But part of that magic was they started shouting people out. And that was a it was a million people in there when I tell you. There was a million people in there. But for me, out of the five people they shouted out, Dave Chappelle was like, oh man, Rudy Rush. And that just resonated. And just the feeling of all of that stuff—it was just an unbelievable thing. And being—that was the most proud I was being outside of getting that thirteen thousand dollars check for the for the uh, for the TV for the series when it came out on DVD. That was a nice check because I was on because I was on the Chris Rock show, which pushed me up to the to like the second volume or something like that. But other than that, I didn't go to college. I didn't, you know, join a frat or anything. I felt like I was a part of something for the first time. I mean, being a comic is cool, but being a Def Jam comic during the Def Jam era, you can't take that away from me. I represent it, and I'm here. So that was that. that was basically Def Jam for me in a nutshell. It was the best thing in the world.
0: Now, which one came first, Um, you going on Def Jam or being the youngest host of Showtime at the Apollo? Because before <laughs> Def Jam, see, I grew up with no cable. So Showtime at the Apollo <laughs> was my Def Jam, right? I had to hear the Def Jam jokes when I came to school. <laughs> What
1: which one came first for you, and which one would you say was more significant? Okay, so so the first thing was Def Jam. So Def Jam, I did surprisingly. You know, people talk about you know, like you know, I laugh when they talk about LeBron James, which is clearly he was a phenom. You know what I mean? But to be on to be on TV on Def Jam at the age of twenty. I was considered in my in my respective field as a phenom. Like I was like you know, and, Ch- and Chappelle is another one. He was on TV at fourteen. And I always used to watch him while I was in high school, uh, watching Teen Summit and things like that. I'm like, hey, this kid is something else. But like I said at the time, I didn't have it in my mind to be a comedian. I just kind of you know applauded the fact that yo this young dude's doing it. But yeah, I got my first television break it was Apollo Comedy Hour, and they had a sketch comedy show. A lot of people don't remember that.
0: No, I used to watch it. I had no cable. It came <laughs> on Sundays at eight because um Paula J. Parker was on there. Um, old cool girl from Mama Love, cool girl from Ice. Love Jones was <laughs> on there because um, the Uptown Comedy Show used to come on like after that, right after that. See, see,
1: brothers with no cable, we know all of that. It's just like being five ten. <laughs> we no. know all of that, but continue. <laughs> yeah, so that was my first actual. That was my first actual TV appearance, and then shortly right after that, that same year, I taped Deaf Comedy Jam. So that was a double at the age of twenty, and so. I started doing warm ups at the age of 23 for Steve Harvey at the Apollo. And then when he left, I was 26 years old, the youngest to this day to be the host of Showtime at the Apollo. So yeah, so Def Jam came first and then the Apollo was next. But the most significant was definitely the Apollo for the doors that it opened and and the lessons that I was taught and some of the things I'm going through now. And, And even in respects to my relationship with Steve Harvey, which hasn't been the greatest and I've, you know, I've gone through stages of dealing with it. It's funny because he's an older gentleman and I never had a relationship with him where I always tried to come and do the right thing. And I just felt like, but this is the deal. When you on the block and you from Detroit, I'm from Harlem, one of my boys, Simeon, he got he got shot years ago. He was on the corner. But dudes that get shot at. He wasn't, he went into that life or whatever. So the producers of the show. Steve wasn't friendly with them or they weren't friendly with him. They were trying to get him to move him on to get to that bag that was generated by him. Yeah, I'm a kid. I don't know none of this stuff. I'm just one. I'm in awe of working and and being in front of that crowd, being in your presence. I have nothing to understand about it. But at the same time, I'm on the corner. I'm with I'm with I'm with the corner boys, which are the producers. So Steve's uncomfortableness with them probably bled into our relationship and kept us from doing things that probably could have been great for both of us. I think I could have helped him just as much as he could have helped me and our friendship could have blossomed into something. But I I, I didn't walk around mad. But when the Steve Harvey negative story would come, I'm like, yeah, he is that way. He is that dude. But now I kind of have a little bit more hindsight, like, yo, the producers of the show, they were really rocking, trying to take advantage, which they did, of a young talent who didn't know much, came from the streets and was paying me lots of money, but there was a lot more money being hidden. And Steve was more like, eh, I can't mess with this kid. He's with them. And I took it the wrong way and he handled it the wrong way. We both handled it and took it the wrong way. Because as an adult, he should be like, yo, kid, this is what the deal is and I think you're great and I can't really rock with you right now. But in the future, boom, 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 boom. But it always, even when I saw him at Jet Jam 25, it was almost like this, this dismissive. And I was like, I got to get out of my feelings with that because I never did anything. I only listened to Steve. And so... But now I'm old enough to say, you know what? He didn't mean to do that. He didn't mean to be that way. It was just like he was in, in, a, in a space and I was and I was with the people who was in the space.
0: Yeah, that's the interesting about things like that. When you talked about healing and being first generation, now we all know. But, you know, to Steve, who I've never met and I don't, you know, have nothing negative or whatever to say, but he was a first generation of, of where he was from also, too. And mm. so all uh, everybody, this is their first time, and everyone at that time is still feeling like, yo, if I don't make this right decision, I got to go back to where I came from. And nobody wants to go back to where they came from. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I, you, you take that lesson, and I'm pretty sure you've learned from that. And when you see an up-and-coming young, whether it's a radio jock or a comedian, I'm pretty sure you give them a little bit more grace than you probably have.
1: No, absolutely. And sometimes to a fault, you know, sometimes like not. And when I say to a fault, you kind of just kind of like you get sidetracked trying to help where sometimes you got to be a little selfish. And like I said, even back to the Steve situation, like, you know, like Steve, he didn't realize at the time and no one could foresee it at the time. The only thing he had going on when they were trying to move him out was the Kings of Comedy and the Kings of Comedy wasn't doing that well because he was the headliner. And it wasn't until they figured out the system where he's a better host. And then having all of the other comics come behind, it became a monumental, a, a classical thing that can not be rivaled. You know, people are still trying to recreate that that situation, and it hasn't been duplicated since. But at the time, when you got this nest egg and you got this thing that you built, which is the he's the best host in Apollo showtime at the Apollo history. I'll say that. I always say I'm the youngest and the cutest. I'm nice looking. <laughs> but other than that, you know, he was he was great for the show, and it brought him and his family a great deal of of success but if it wasn't for that push I don't know if Steve would be the workhorse that he is today doing so much and excelling to the to the to the heights that he has and I, I know he by himself has to I hope he's understood that that part of his life but he didn't like it it made him uncomfortable when you're uncomfortable you turn into some greatness if you you know fight through it and whatever but yeah I I think our relationship suffered because the producers were it was a conflict of interest, which I had no idea. And no, he's 23. I'm making money. I'm on McDonald's tour. I'm on Def Jam tour. I'm doing all these different things. These are my best friends. They're doing everything for me. But they were taking something from him that he created and he loved. And he just, you know, our, our, our relationship suffered from that. That's that's what me as the grown man now realize.
0: Now, you, you, you spoke about work ethic. And the thing about it is you made a transition or kind of a, same career thing that a lot of comedians were not willing to do. You got into the radio game and you even worked under the legendary Doug Banks. Now, Doug Banks was such a legend, rest in peace, that truthfully, I didn't grow up listening to him because he wasn't syndicated in Detroit, but I still knew who he was when I got into the media game. Mm. How how did you step into that and then be under someone
1: that legendary? You know what? Doug, working with Doug Banks was one of the greatest experiences of my life, and I mean to say that because... I've worked with everybody. I mean, I sat in on Tom Jordan's show before, Michael Bazin. I've done comedy shows with everybody you can name from Tracy Morgan, Mike Epps, George Wallace, you name them, Paul Mooney. I mean, I've worked with a lot of legends in the game. But working for Doug was great because the things that I didn't get as a kid, and even though, you know, 30 years old, now that I'm older, I was a kid at 30. And, and and I was a fan of Doug prior to that because they would always come to the Apollo to do uh, a broadcast when he was on in New York City. And I would always miss it because I was on the road with the Apollo Kids Tour. And I always wanted to meet Doug. And I finally met him at this thing called Real Men Cook. And we hit it off and it was cool. And I was doing some radio, but then Ricky Smiley was on Doug's show and he was leaving. And they were trying to replace him. And I actually got replaced. I replaced uh, Ricky on the show. And, and a lot of people don't know this. And I don't know... If, I put it out there now, but I got an offer that got taken off in New York City. And Vinnie Brown, who I used to always bump heads with, and I was very surprised because Wendy Williams used to be under WBLS, and we used to all do these Christmas functions and stuff. And Vinnie and I would bump heads all the time. Because <laughs> listen, I was young, but I wasn't going for that. Like I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't disrespectful. But I was like, yeah, yeah I don't work for you. And but he offered me and my agency uh, a, a very, very lucrative. Check to replace Doug in New York City. And at the same time, Doug and his team with ABC, they were based out of Dallas. They were offering me a chance to work with them. Less money, but I felt like it was like, man, I'm working with the legend. I'm working with a guy who I really admire. Didi's on the show as well as co-host. I know them. I know the show. I've been on there, and I can learn. And as a comedian, I could be syndicated. And part of my confidence was in allowing me to think that I can do a a city like New York where I come from by myself. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to take less money and I'm going to learn, which actually served me better. But at the same time, so working with him was great. He gave me the affirmation that I needed from my parents when he did interviews. He was like, Rudy gets it. Rudy's one of the greatest comedians that I've seen do radio. Like everything that I needed, the confidence that I needed to to, to hear, to say, yeah, you're doing the right thing. He gave it to me. So he's very missed and it was great to work with him. Actually, the best thing I ever decided to do in my career, in my life.
0: In all your years in comedy, because even though you do radio, comedy is still there. Even talking to you, you know, I can tell the comedy will always be there. You could probably be at home and your comedy is always there. I, I can imagine you disciplining your your children, and you probably <laughs> still say something funny, and they don't want to laugh because they yeah. know they're getting disciplined. Um, what What would you say has changed in comedy over the years, especially where we at now mm. with can, with cancel culture? What would you say has changed? Well, you know,
1: I think. As comedians, a lot has changed with the cancel culture. You gotta be careful. And and I have friends who who, you know, they 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 definitely walk the line. And I think we all can, because there's been times where I've been questioned about something that I've said, and I'm like, I'm not I'm the least most aggressive guy when it comes to politics or, or gender or sexuality or whatever. But my, my my comedy does cross some of those lines at one time or another. So I think you just got to, like, conform to what's going on. I mean, just think about it like this. We grew up in an era where Ricky and Lucy slept in separate beds. And now you're seeing people with booty cheeks and all kinds of stuff on regular ABC, NBC TV. Like, the times have changed dramatically. Now, we ain't complaining about that. Well, there's certain things. There's a lot more people involved. There's a lot more. Think about all of the television stations that they have now. I can't even tell you how many streaming services and TV programs. There's like over oh, a thousand. It almost makes you feel terrible if you're an actor and you ain't got no work. Like, why you ain't got no work? And there's a million different stations out here pro- providing content. But the thing is, it's so many more people that are available to see what you're doing and, and hearing you. Where before it was a little bit it was more you had to be in a comedy culture. You had to be a comedian lover to hear comedy. And if you were a comedy lover, which there still are people that still forty percent or more of the crowd is comedy lovers. So they understand the dark humor. They understand the, the 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 slight. Where everyone else is like, now it's 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 popular to do, but I didn't know I was gonna come here and, and, and my father who's Dealing with Alzheimer's and dementia now, they then triggered me into feeling like I got to complain. So that's that's the world we live in. We got to be careful. We get paid more money to be comics now, so there's more responsibility. I know that's terrible, and comics ain't gonna necessarily agree with me, but it's part of it. You know what I mean? So it's just like working in 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 the in a professionals sports arena. Like you get paid a lot of money. Well, you got to show up to the kids Christmas <laughs> function. You know, like there's certain things that you probably wouldn't do that you have to kind of be careful in doing so. I still commend the comics who push forward, like Chappelle and and Burr and things like that, and they push their agenda because we do need a voice that that can handle the weight of the culture trying to cancel because it helps me to have a better show because they'll be less likely to come after someone for me for saying something small. You know, you can't be canceling everybody.
0: Yeah, so my theory is that when we started, especially in our generation, when they started cutting a lot of art in school, like the, just the teaching of art, like the teaching of art, it feels like to me that a lot of people don't understand the actual what art is and mm. what it's supposed to be. They have this, under, they, they think like art is supposed to just make you happy all the time. Mm. And even certain comedians who want to remain stubborn is almost like they, they don't necessarily understand, especially when you see these Instagram comedians that are coming up in that, mm.
1: right?
0: What is your take when you see the new Instagram comedians coming up in the game. And they didn't necessarily go through the roads that you went through, the dudes that you went through. And to what you just mentioned, the bag is bigger. They get a lot more money and the popularity is there. And it almost seems like they don't get the council culture criticism that the school of hard knocks comedian that you
1: are get.
0: What mm. is your take on that?
1: So my take is a lot different than most comics. Uh, a lot of comics are coming around to my 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 train of thought to a degree. I actually love them. I actually like commend them for doing a lot of things that you know you got to change. Before it was Def Jam, there was a group of comics that were going out and they were just living off the land. It was like the, the you know think about this. There probably if if there was a study of how many comedy clubs that popped up from the Def Jam era, because you couldn't tell me before Def Jam that there was. Even a thousand comedy clubs in the country, let alone twenty to forty thousand. Every time you turn around, there's a comedy club somewhere. And I feel like these social media kids are, you know, doing what we did. We trailblaze a new and different way of expressing and and content is king right now. The only downside to it is a lot of the times I'll see them recreating jokes that we tell. That's yeah. the problem. I think when you have original content, that's Beautiful, but when I'm telling a personal story about how I spent the night in my boy's crib in L.A. and it got cold in the middle of the night, and I didn't know it got cold, and you know I'm like he's in his room with the door closed, and I'm cold as I don't know what, but I said I'm gonna brave it, and the next day I wake up with a blanket on me. There's a whole big story and a funny conversation that goes on with that, and people are like, oh my God, that's hilarious. I can see how that could happen, but then I see it reenacted in a in a in a popular comedian, uh, social comedians joke stealing and you monetize from that so there's a small little thin line i commend them like i said uh, the the country wanes and 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 the the beast and and the you know just hilarious and a lot of them dc young fly they have gotten to the point where they have tried to do comedy or they are doing comedy and they've gotten a lot better and they're doing the thing so now you have this vehicle where you can bring all this audience like Brian Ryan Davis and those guys. They bring this huge audience and they got jokes and we got to catch up. So it's a lot of comics like myself that have to get up every day and I struggle. But you got to, you know, it's uncomfortable to be doing all these videos every day because we don't see ourselves as silly people. <laughs> we don't, we, you know, it's a, it's a thin line, especially if you're an older, comic, you know, I ain't doing all this silly messing around here and there, but you know, you gotta, if you want to break through and grab these audiences that you want to sell out shows around the country, because what it does serve us better with, just imagine if I can get 10,000 people to come see Rudy rush with the jokes I got, see, that's the disadvantage to the social media guys. They could bring them in. Now what you got? Uh, and you know, I was chilling. They were like, oh, I was all right. I'm not going back to see that guy. But if they, if I can get those people and that's the upside for us, Change, your, change, your, change, change your, your thought process and get out there and put out some content. Work, work for yourself a little bit and get those people to come to you. And then when they see you funny, now the next time you come, they definitely come in with 10 more people. And then you start building from there. So, you know, to answer your question, I know I go around the, the neighborhood 50 million times, but I think those kids are great. They're innovative. I think their editing skills should be used more in Hollywood and other, uh, you know, and a lot of them do take it and put it to work because I'm like, how can you put, because there was a time when it was 15 seconds. I was like, you did a movie in 15 seconds. Like, it was so, you know, greatly edited and stuff like that and very talented people. And so, yeah, I'm with it. I'm I'm, I'm with it.
0: Yeah, I'm with it. I'm with you on what you said, most definitely, because, you know, as a writer, when I got in this game, still the times I remember my personal stories of being broke. And my mom was able to send me twenty dollars and I bought my last bag of noodles and (laughs) I'm in I'm in my friend's apartment and a roach jumped in the pot and I had to make a decision. Right. (laughs) I had to make a decision. And if I share that story and I see someone else amplify that story i'm going to take that personal right because yeah, that. that was a real experience i had i spent my last on these noodles and whoop, whoop. And i'm not even gonna tell you what decision i made just know it's a personal I know you story ate. i know you ate look i had roaches on my stuff i'm like <laughs> i'm still here i'm still yeah. standing i'm still strong right yeah um, yeah you pray up to god like god made dirt dirt don't work it, it is what it is so you know i i definitely get you on that okay so before I get you out here, I got to ask you your take on a few things, all right? Uh-huh. We're going we're gonna to do some speed takes, and I just got to ask your perspective. And since I know you sharp, I know you're going to get with it. All right. First up, your man, fellow comedian, Nick Cannon, I think he's on his 12th kid. Yeah. <laughs> Cannon, what do you say to that? Because he's been all around the world lately.
1: So I'm going to say this. One thing is he's, not, he's been called a lot of things, but he hasn't been, been called a bad father. And I feel like if you can afford to take care of that many children, which he can, and the mothers of his children can at least on the Mariah side. So between the first couple out the gate, and how many sets of twins does he have? Woo! I think three. I'm not sure, but he got. So when you take that into consideration, he ain't really putting in the pumps that everybody think he is. You know what I'm saying? Like he really just like he got he got six kids from three different situations. Like he just he's just he's a twin maker. And so I feel like, and to his credit, one thing about men, and you're a man and so am I, and we understand this, and I commend Nick Cannon for this. It's, it's, it's great for content to joke about it, but in all actuality, if any man out here is going to you know, be fruitful and multiply, if there's a blueprint to do it, I would use Nick Cannon as an, as, a, as an inspiration because he didn't start having kids till he was old enough to understand what having a child means. He wasn't 20. He wasn't 19. He was in his 30s when he had his first set of kids with Mariah Carey. And now, well into his 40s, he's mastered the art of it. And now he wants to. And and, and just like females, men can have baby fever, too. I feel like I've had my two kids, have two children, two girls, and they're 10 years apart. I thought I would never have another child. And then, you know, my youngest come into the world. And then all of a sudden I'm getting all these these feelings. And now I'm really embracing it because I know how much I miss it with my oldest daughter. Now I'm trying to just really. Engulf myself so that's probably what's going on with Nick so Nick gets a, a 10 plus from me on being a father I wish he'd have a hundred more kids I know they'd be all right I know they have a good father and a, and all that good stuff so yeah no problem with that
0: yeah I just want to know what kind of water the brother drinking that's all I like, <laughs> that's all I like um the next take your guy Kanye yeah. and I'm not going to say specifically because by the time we talk about one subject he'll be on another totally but when you when you see Kanye you think what
1: you know what? He's an enigma to this point. Like, you know, he he, he he's not an enigma because he tells you how he feels. But at the same time it's like, you know, a lot of people who are fighting for the the, the righteousness of of us and the the people in the world, uh, African Americans or whatever, it's like, you know, I feel for him and He's been reported to have mental issues, but sometimes those people are the smartest and most, most brave and most intellectual people. And so there's something to be understood. I'll tell you this much, and I hate to jump off the Kanye, but like Monique. Monique had issues with people, and I feel like she was in her right to address it. Now, the way she did it may not be the way you and I are accustomed to see people handling disputes. How about that? So we can agree that she's right, but maybe we disagree on how she handled it. I think there's something to be said about what Kanye is saying. Is he lying about one thing, but something else he says damages it? The Def CON comments, like if you keep it simple and say, well, why don't we have this and why don't we have that? And no one has an answer. People have been saying that forever, but no one seems to listen. Or why is he any different than Dr. Umar? Dr. Um has been spewing this same thing forever, but he's not canceled because he's not that important. He's not that influential, you know, black people love him, but, but Kanye is moving the world. People are buying his product and everything. So it's just, I, I, I like Kanye and I, I like some of the things he does. His approach is sometimes something that we are not used to, but sometimes you need the shot to get the world to listen. So I'm going to, I'm going to hold my opinion on Kanye. I don't feel like he's wrong or right at the time, but I feel like, you know, he he's on to something. i put it that way.
0: All I know is, if, as a parent, if my child is at his Donda Academy and they get an F, for, and they get an F for reading, and the founder has admitted he doesn't read, we are gonna have an issue. That's all I know. That's what I. That's what I can tell you right now within this moment. Um, my next take is your fellow comedian. I live in D.C. Red Grant is running for mayor. Yeah, right. He's running for mayor, right? And I'm yeah. not gonna lie to you. I thought it was a joke, but the brother seems to be sticking in. What do you feel about it? Can a comedian be taken seriously for a political position like that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think if anybody knows Al Franken, who is uh, what used to be SNL, mm-hmm. he is a popular, uh, uh, he was what, a Senate? Or he was, a senator. The, he was yeah, a senator. He was a Senator. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, people change athletes. Ronald Reagan was an actor. You know, there's so many people who come from different genres into, into politics. And Re- Grant does have, have a special. Uh, uh, Affection with people, and he's he's good with it. He has a cool demeanor, and he does have a love for his city of D.C. And he definitely has a platform and a and a base within celebrity culture, which can actually help his city in doing things like he could probably call Snoop tomorrow to do a fundraiser for the neighborhood, or he called Cat Williams or myself or anybody of that nature. So I feel he's in a great position. Sometimes you grow up, you know. Comedy is not about being. You know, growing old and being like George Carlin or or some of the greats who actually, you know, look, Eddie Murphy Er, Murphy hasn't done stand up in I don't know how many years. So he just sees a way where he can benefit his family and benefit his city and and his culture. And I think he's doing a great job and I commend him. I'm, I'm very proud of him.
0: Well, if he wins, Mayor, that'll be the first time D.C. voted for red. Literally. So that's for sure.
1: <laughs> but you know what? Mary and Barry winning twice. I'm like, how the hell can you not win in D.C.? If you're going to run for man anywhere in the world, you need to go to D.C. So, Hey, listen. Yeah, I hope he wins.
0: Hey, listen, that's what it is. Now, I know this, on this next one I got to ask you, and you've been asked before, but when you saw the Will Smith and Chris Rock, the slap, as a comedian, you thought what? And w- what did you think then and
1: how you feel now? So I'm gonna tell you every man and every woman but men especially honestly you put yourself in the position of how you react to things so me I never give people in a in a in a argumentative state I don't give them space you don't get that much space so so when he walked up and did what he did to Chris and Chris had his hands behind his back more so than even defending himself like yo don't hit me I thought it was staged that was my first initial then when he said what he was saying if you look at some of the people's reaction behind him, even their reaction wasn't so much of a shock, but he was going in with the cursing. So it was just weird, but I felt like it was staged initially. Now that it's kind of like taking a little life of its own and, and and it's been hashed out, it was just a sad situation. And, you know, Bill Bellamy, who I tour with currently said something. He's like, Chris Rock was slappable. I think it was somebody else making those comments, but there was a history behind it too. So I hope that, you know, those guys can come together, but me personally, it ain't about me getting smacked, cause everybody can get smacked. It's about how you let people get close enough to smack you. That'll never happen to me if I can help it. You smack me, you snuck me. I ain't see it coming. You was like real friendly, and then you just compelled me. Because if you were coming in an angry state, because for Chris Rock, it wasn't staged. You know that he's not supposed to get out of seat. He he said the curse word. You know all you know. He didn't curse first, but he got up. Like, what you doing? Like, I would have been like, yo, what's wrong with you? Like, I would have been in a stance. You know, like, yo, stand right there. And I would have had security and given them at least another click or two where they could have came and did something. But yeah, that was that was unbelievable. Unbelievable.
0: I, I just got two more. Now, talking about the fact of being a celebrity, right now at this moment, this morning, I know you probably heard that one of the Migos' takeoff was murdered, right? Yo. Lost, lost his life, right? And so I don't want to get to the details because the details are still being out, but he's He is gone, so rest in peace to him. Do you feel a certain concern about the level of celebrity now versus when you were coming up in the game? Because it seems as if it almost can seem like they're more accessible. Like when you think about comedians that's been showing people going on stage and smacking them every since Will Smith did it, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there should be more of an awareness that there is a threat when it comes to being a celebrity with the social media era?
1: I think so, because people feel more tied to – or like you said, people can touch you. People can be, you have more access. So people should be on a swivel. But I think it's a little different in the hip hop game because the violent level is like, they, you know, we have to have a little scrap up. And it's not that many documents, you know, like Dave had that situation and then uh, Steve Brown had a situation. But as far as the, the Migos kid and all these other rappers, there's something else going on there that needs to be addressed and investigated by us because there's some kind of culture that's existing now where it's popular, whether it's life insurance policies and somebody's benefiting from it, or it's something in the culture that says we need to we're projecting this, we're killing each other mentality. But yeah, I feel for him and his, his his partners and his family and everything like that. But it's something deeper going on with the rap culture as opposed to as a comic. I don't feel any fear going into any venue, being on stage, talking about anything, you know. But as a rapper, if I had a young person in my family or someone who I knew and I know some young rappers, I feel for them because they live in a world that exists with just violence and, and, and threats and all kinds of stuff.
0: That's real. That's real. And it's a sad thing that continuously hear every morning and, and almost to the point I'm tired of putting RIP on my Twitter, you know? Mm. I, I really am. But, you know, it's just, it's just, it just becomes sad. And now that I'm older, is like the rappers are younger. Like I'm yeah. understanding how young Tupac and Biggie was when I was a kid. Like I'm Man. understanding that. Because now I'm past that age and I'm looking back and I'm just, my heart is just, you know, it, it it, it, it keeps getting this hit and I just don't know how to describe it. My last take, what does Rudy Rush see in the future comedy? What is it you're seeing? that comedy is evolving to that you don't think no one else is seeing?
1: You know, I honestly feel like there's going to be a new surge because right now, if you think about all of the top comedians and in respect to even Kevin Hart, you know, Kevin is not taking a step back from, you know, since COVID has slowed down, I think it slowed his momentum a little bit as far as just the, you know, seeing him everywhere, but, but he's, he's really, he's, he's one of the few comics that really took the blow and are doing some, still doing some great things. Like I seen him perform and his stand-up is even funnier than it was before the, the pandemic. And so, but I do feel like there's going to be some new faces, some, some unfamiliar faces and then some people who you haven't seen in a long time or you haven't seen at that capacity doing some really great things that are going to take comedy and culture to a whole nother plateau. So I'm just looking forward to that and hopefully being a part of it.
0: That's what's up. I, you know, sir, I feel like I could talk to you all day. Please know that this invitation is open for you anytime. So right. please, like I'm, I'm, I was going to wait to follow you after this conversation so you know who I am. So... <laughs> 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 you know what I mean? Because yeah, having, yeah. ra- having a random guy in your DM, you might be like, wait, i you know, Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. I know, I know I'm good looking, but brother, you know,
1: Hey, um... <laughs> hey listen, all I ask, all I ask, because I do accept dudes sometimes who request it, just have your shirt on, bro. <laughs> That's right. it. A, yo, yeah, yo, no pictures of it. Yeah, no if, you the, <laughs> if you got no shirt on, I will I will block you almost damn, yo, damn I, near. I,
0: it's amazing when you see a request and all you can see is a brother's neck muscles. I'm like, hey man. <laughs> Can you at <laughs> least lift the tank top just a little bit higher? That's, that's all. You know, that's all. Yeah, you know. Your, yeah. your choice is your choice. You know, but um, no, nah, I really do appreciate it. And I, I really want you to keep coming back because I think that comedians and those that, of your season as a veteran, we need to hear your voice a little bit more. So please know that if there's anything specifically you want to come on to, contact me, contact the producers, and please come back. This is a revolving door for you.
1: Hey, thank you, bro. I appreciate the invite, man. Thank you so much, man. This was fun, Jay. Yeah, No,
0: it was. It was. Is there anything on the table for you that you want to get out there that we should know?
1: Yeah, you know what? I got a bunch of projects, so I would just love everybody to follow me, at Rudy Rush. You know, I'm at the level where you can subscribe to uh, my IG and we got some great content coming uh, some some personal stuff and just some one-on-ones or like you know going live with some of my subscribers once a month so you know you got to find different ways to just kind of touch people in different ways so I have that got a couple of TV projects coming to HGTV hopefully which is a uh, bathroom renovation show starring myself and also another one that's called cookout game, which is kind of fun. Uh, people enjoy that it has a cooking element and celebrities playing and, and being competitive and talking smack. So that's always fun. So I've got that touring with bill Bellamy right now, but about to go and transform that into doing some other tour dates on my own and start doing clubs around the country. So it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting. So I'm just looking forward to that. And you can follow me at Rudy rush on everything.
0: Appreciate you good sir. As usual, this has been another episode of the history of being black. I feel like my blackness has been elevated. You, sir, you feel like your blackness has <laughs> been elevated? <laughs> absolutely, though. Absolutely. I <laughs> feel like it's been elevated. You know, you can always find us on all of the social media platforms. Make sure you check out our episode on Spotify, Apple, and all of that. You can also follow us on history being black on Instagram. I'm Jay haw You can follow me on all social media platforms at J-Haw Society. As usual, be blessed for successful, and we will talk to you soon. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean Line Media podcast network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean Line Media production.